thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. This is the Fighter Pilot Podcast, episode 136. This week, we celebrate the centennial of U.S. Navy aircraft carriers with a discussion on the significance of America's carriers since the beginning in 1922 through the past century's major wars to today. We then offer an educated guess at what the future holds for these capital ships and all they represent, particularly in light of advancing threats. Never mind the announcements and chit-chat, we get straight to the interview with a guest who recently commanded a nuclear-powered Nimitz-class aircraft carrier and a co-host who soon hopes to. Here we go. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. 2022 marks the 100th anniversary of U.S. Navy aircraft carriers, and what a century it's been. Now, here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, we have featured carrier operations several times, including episodes 11 through 15 back in our first year as a show, and even just this last week with Carrier Air Traffic Control by Katsy Sue. But this week, we take a more strategic look at aircraft carriers over the decades, as well as the years to come. And here to help me do that as co-host is the star of episode 83 on Electronic Attack, U.S. Navy Captain Dave Kurtz. Mini-Me, welcome back. It's good to be back, Jello. Thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. So uh, it's been a little while since we heard from you. What's new? I mean, it's been almost two years. It has. It's been almost two years. And at that time, I was in command of USS Somerset, LPD-25. And we'd just come back from being underway right as COVID hit. So in the subsequent two years, I did a COVID-driven deployment on USS Somerset, which was awesome. We did some great work over there in the Fifth Fleet area of operations. And I turned over Somerset in November of 2021, and I'm now over at Naval Air Forces Pacific here in San Diego. And my wife and I were proud to attend that event. Thank you very much. And part of your uh, program was a rather flattering, shall I say, photograph of you with some COVID hair. <laughs> oh, yes. That was awesome. When we had our barbershop shut down for uh, months on end, I got a nice official picture taken with the uh, super long hair. Very good. That's great. All right. Well, <laughs> that's an anomaly to us in the military. But at any rate, all right. So we're talking about the century of U.S. aircraft carriers, but the two of us are not alone. So you want to introduce our guest? Now with us here is Captain Walt Sarge Slaughter. He's a former CEO of USS Abraham Lincoln. Therefore, that makes him, I think, the de facto expert on aircraft carriers, at least in this room. All right. Well, welcome, Sarge. Thanks, Jello. Thanks, Mini-Me. It's great to be here and really excited to talk aircraft carriers today. I think of where we were 100 years ago and where we are today. It's just amazing the leaps in technology and that aircraft carriers have seen throughout this last century. Oh, gosh, you're not kidding. Well, let's get into that. But first, you know the drill. Let's talk about you a little bit. Where are you from and what did you do in the military? We already know you were a CEO of the Lincoln. That's cool. I grew up in Austin, Texas, Texas A&M University, and then uh, 
Went to Aviation Officer Candidate School, AOCS was my uh, commissioning source. Flew S3s my first tour. Ah. Transitioned to the Tomcat, flew F-14s for a few tours there, and then ultimately commanded an F-18F Super Hornet Squadron at uh, NAS Oceana in Virginia, VFA-213, the Fighting Black Lions. And then I uh, spent a little time in the Pentagon. Following that, I got picked up for the Navy's nuclear propulsion program. Went through a couple years of pretty advanced training, and then moved out to San Diego. Been out here a, a little while. Was XO of USS Carl Vinson. And then I commanded a USS New Orleans, same class of ship that many me had uh, with Somerset, LPD-18. Spent a little bit of time on the AirPAC staff, and then just recently finished up a couple-year tour commanding USS Abraham Lincoln that included a nice long 10-month deployment in support of Fifth Fleet operations. So we have already had, like I said, some episodes on aircraft carriers on the tactical level, and that was with Pappy Anduzzi. He was also the XO of yeah, Carl Vinson. He relieved me as XO of Carl Vinson. Is that right? Okay. Sure did. Where is he? I've lost track of him. He is CEO of Theodore Roosevelt. Oh. They are uh, normally uh, homeported in San Diego. They are undergoing what we call a docking planned incremental availability, or DPA. And the only dry dock big enough for a carrier on the West Coast is up in Bremerton, Washington. So when we cycle our ships periodically you've got to actually move the ship up to the pack norwest to complete that maintenance so that's the only dry dock on the west coast big enough i've actually been up there we did an episode on uh, carl vinson when it was in dry dock i had a chance to walk underneath it it was crazy yeah good times all right so sarge you already talked about a century of and we're going to say u.s aircraft carriers so just to keep it simple but where did the clock start what we have today is nothing obviously what we had at the beginning but where did the clock start the clock started obviously with some planning and some inspiration from our british allies But really, the clock for United States Navy aircraft carriers began on 20 March 1922, following about a two-year conversion at Norfolk Naval Shipyard. The former USS Jupiter, which was Collier Number 3, was recommissioned as our U.S. Navy's first aircraft carrier, and that was the USS Langley, CV-1. Right now, we've got CV-78. Ford is our last in commission carrier in 79 and 80 and 81 are all in different stages of construction. And they've gone sequentially from one all the way through, uh, again, 81 right now is the latest. And they had different letters at different times, uh, CV, CVA, CVL, I think. CVL, CVS. CVS, CVNs now. CVNs now. Okay. All right. Gosh, I mean, in the first several years, I got to think these things changed quite a bit and they certainly made a difference in World War II. Absolutely. If you think about 1922, you know, when we entered U.S. Navy carrier aviation, it was a mere 20 years later at the Battle of Midway in June of 1942, where the carrier proved its mettle in battle and really was where we shifted the centerpiece of our naval fighting force from the battleship to the aircraft carrier. I don't think I overstate it by saying, you know, turn the tide of World War II, certainly in the Pacific, and without those aircraft carriers things might have turned out quite a bit differently. I think we're uh, very fortunate that when Pearl Harbor was attacked in December of 1941, I think one of the advantages we pulled out of that was that none of our aircraft carriers were in port when that happened. Yeah, we've had that discussion. In fact, back in December on this show, we had some gentlemen on that had written books about the attack on Pearl Harbor, and so that did come up. Now, in 1922, though, that wasn't necessarily the beginning of people landing on ships. I mean, as early as 1910, I think, if my uh, records are correct here, 
Eugene Eli was out there uh, doing some barnstormer-esque type tricks, landing on converted decks. and uh, We had some converted decks, but the first purpose-built, I will say, aircraft carrier is where we start the milestone, I'll say. Yeah. But certainly there was a lot of testing and development and a lot of brave folks doing a lot of, probably at the time, what seemed like absolute crazy things to get us where we are. Where we even were in 1922, much less uh, if you think about where we are today. Well, and Minnie, I'm going to drag you in here from time to time. I mean, I know you're no historian, but aircraft carriers have changed a lot from the Langley, even to the Midway, although it looked different in World War II than it does today. But the size, the composition of the flight deck. Absolutely. And even the mission, if you think about that 20-year chunk between the commissioning of Langley and Midway, it really started with the desire to have more accurate bombardments from battleships. Well, if we send airplanes out there, they can tell us exactly where our stuff is landing, (laughs) then we could be more accurate with that. And it expanded. The whole drive of what has changed in terms of how aircraft carriers are operated and even how they look to support that was driven by the innovation of air crews and sailors on board the ship, taking a look at what they have, what they can do better, and then what they need to be able to do that. And they drove that innovation. So those 20 years were vital to even transition just what we were going to use them for into something that, uh, like Sarge mentioned, really changed the course of World War II and I think the course of history. And Sarge, I'll come back to you because while they were war-built machines, if that's the way to put it, right, war machines uh, with a design purpose, that's not the only thing they do, as we learned in Japan in what, 2011? 2011 and multiple, a lot of humanitarian disaster relief. What the aircraft carrier really can bring to the fight is A, that mobile flight deck for helicopters, but a very, very robust medical capability and hospital internal to the ship, as well, the ability to make fresh water, which we've seen those capabilities are lost ashore, perhaps, during a disaster. The carrier's ability to make and even bottle our own water and send it ashore uh, has proved vital in some of those relief efforts. The aircraft carrier's got the ability to take 400,000 gallons of seawater and turn it into fresh water every day. Wow. So it is a tool for the government to do different things, primarily militarily, but also be, like you said, humanitarian assistance. Sometimes it's just pulling into ports and saying, hey, look, we're your friends, and here we are, and Absolutely. It is a very unique symbol of the United States, really. I mean, although other nations operate them, nobody operates a carrier force like the one that we have in service today. And certainly, like you said, both from a peaceful presence to a deterrent, nothing says we don't like what you're doing than parking an (laughs) aircraft carrier 50, 100 miles off your coast and operating our aircraft. I think it's a very unique symbol of American might and American naval power. For sure. Now, did you get to go into any fun ports as CEO of Lincoln, or was that during COVID? It wasn't during COVID, but it was during (laughs) some other things going on. Uh And uh, unfortunately, we spent about seven months of our 10-month deployment on station in Fifth Fleet. The only port open to us at that time was Duke of Oman, which is... uh, up-and-coming spot in the Middle East there, and uh, certainly provided a place for the crew to get off the ship, mm-hmm. get a little bit of R&R. There's a couple uh, hotels in town that opened up to us and things like that, and obviously we had some things on the pier, and as we went there multiple times, we ended up actually sending folks on tours and things out into Oman to Muscat and things to see some bigger cities and things like that, but was a little tough on the crew from a uh, Liberty perspective, but like always, they're very resilient and they 
made the best of it, and we uh, <laughs> did have a fantastic week in Hawaii on the backside on the nice. way home. Okay, good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Always those little payoffs here and there. You mentioned that showing the flag to our allies, to our friends out there, and how far that strategic petty officer goes. When Afghanistan and Iraq were going on, you'd hear a lot about the strategic corporal, strategic private, and their interactions with the locals and how they make a lot of the difference to how the populace views us. The same thing applies when you pull into a port and you're briefing up your sailors on going out there and spending a little money, eating in the restaurants, being a friendly face. Uh, It goes a long way toward influencing local populations about not only the United States, United States Navy as well. All right, Sarge. So we've had a little trip down uh, history lane here, and we'll talk about some future threats and different things. But today, 2022, aircraft carrier remains what? Just as relevant as it ever has? I certainly think it's just as relevant as it's ever been. Being a mobile airbase, I think it's probably one of the most survival airfields that we have in the Department of the Defense. The ability to rapidly move the ship around a region, that's where the nuclear power comes in and the ability to move that 100,000-ton warship with great speed around an AOR really is an advantage to offsetting the threats that the aircraft carrier faces. And how does it fit in these days with the uh, joint force? So it's not just out there as a raging single, as we would say, right? It really does weave into theater operations? Absolutely. I think over the decades that we've all served, you know, we saw the Navy go from that independent force to we fight as a joint force now. And the Navy's got a role in that joint force. And the aircraft carrier certainly is the centerpiece of our strike groups has a role in that joint force in a combined air battle. The Navy's got a piece as well as the other services, if we've got the basing rights and things for Air Force or other land-based services aircraft. But certainly the aircraft carrier plays a vital piece, and not just in that air campaign, but in the combined maritime campaign that's run by the Navy as well. Many me, I was reading uh, earlier that the USS Langley served in World War II, which I didn't know about. I think it was like an escort or a, like delivered aircraft or something. It was attacked and ultimately scuttled, so it lasted 20 years. Aircraft carriers today are designed to last, what, 50 years? I mean, 50 years. Yeah, right. that's half the time we're talking about we're celebrating today. And we're doing so much when it comes to the maintenance of the aircraft carriers to extend this life out. I had the opportunity as the XO of Nimitz to go into the dry dock, like Sarge was talking about up in Bremerton, and see the work that was going into it. A couple of things struck in my mind there. The first one was that when Nimitz was built, and of course all the other ships in the class afterwards, it was designed and built to facilitate this type of maintenance. There are different spaces on the ship that look odd and misplaced, but what you figure out there is, oh, that's how they access the pins that hold the rudders in place so they can pull the rudders off and do maintenance on them. So it was purpose-built and designed in order to be able to extend the full life of the ship and really optimize the return on investment for taxpayers. When it comes to the reactor cores, we're finding that The cores, by being operated more efficiently, uh, we're finding more life in those things. And of course, then as the new class comes online, the Ford class, it's got upgraded reactors. They're able to extend the life of these things out. And so from a taxpayer perspective, I'm really glad to see this. If my money's going towards an aircraft carrier, I want it to last as long as absolutely possible. The second thing that struck out to me during that dry docking period were the efforts that the sailors were putting into making this happen, because they know that they're going to have to operate it. But not only that, but 
kids still in elementary school may have to operate this thing. (laughs) And they are setting up the people who are behind them for success in the future. And it's the dedication of the sailors that's really lasting, really making these ships last well beyond what we originally thought we were going to do. And advancements in technology make this easier over time. I'll add to that, you know, let's not sugarcoat it. These things are expensive. But I think the bang for the buck for the taxpayer is unequaled across the DOD. You think about a 100-year centennial, 47 of those years have USS Nimitz has been in service, commissioned in 1975, and matter of fact, is off the coast of Southern California as we talk right now, providing a platform for uh, young uh, student aviators to fleet carrier qualify for the first time. So half of this century has had the Nimitz class uh, aircraft carriers as part of it. When I had Pappy on the show, I had asked him, how do we decide how many carriers or what number or who does it or whatever? And I think I ended up either distracting him or he he took a different part of the question. But so we have how many now and how many should we have? I mean, there was a time we had, of course, in World War II, it was a different animal, but we probably had dozens. Lately, I thought maybe like 13, 14, but in the last decade or two, it's been 10. We've got 11 right now. 11. We've got 10 Nimitz class aircraft carriers, CVNs 68 through 77. And then we've got the USS Gerald R. Ford, the first of the Ford class is the 11th. And we are required by law to have the Navy is required to maintain 11 active aircraft carriers. Only 11 or 11 or greater? Well, 11. Because <laughs> they're uh, also the ones paying for them, right? <laughs> right. I'm sure there's no law preventing us from having more, but it might be a fiscal. Yeah. Well, these things aren't cheap. Are we prepared to talk about what one of these costs, supposedly, as far as, I mean, how do you measure the cost on this? But I'm sure it's on some congressional budget office somewhere. Are these like... It's in the billions. (laughs) It's a lot. All right. Well, but so is social programs and a lot of other stuff, but let's move on from that. All right. So this one's for either one of you. We talked about the joint force a moment ago, but you know, if you look back again through the last hundred years, especially at the end of the what 1940s, there was this big discussion with the cold war just starting. Do we want ships or submarines or do we want missiles or B-36 peacemakers, you know, those giant aluminum overcasts. And as I understand it, there was pretty big I don't know what to call it, but argument between the Air Force and the Navy, and that led to the famed Admiral's Revolt. Is that still true today? Is there still a big food fight over funds? I mean, when the Air Force looks at, in the billions, quote-unquote, aircraft carrier, are they saying, hey, look, we could have so many more bombers for this? I think that is always going to be the case. Yeah, The funding for the military and for everything that the U.S. government does is a constrained asset. And so we're going to have to always determine as a country what our priorities are going to be. The role that you talked about in terms of integrating in with the joint force plays a big part in helping to determine, will this be one of the priorities? The versatility that the aircraft carrier brings, I think, does a really nice job of making the argument just on its own in terms of carrying a big stick and being a nice part of the overall package of what we can do for defense. The mobility that Sarge talked about in terms of being a mobile airfield, the versatility that you talked about in terms of distilling water and carrying helicopters like they did with special forces off of Afghanistan in 2001 on Kitty Hawk, all of these are arguments for why the aircraft carrier is important, not just as a piece of our ability to carry out national defense, but also as a piece of our ability to carry out national and international peace. That versatility, mobility, plus the fist that it brings, I think all speak highly to why this is an important priority for the government to fund. For sure. 
Well, I think also, you know, it's not that I get it. We don't have an unlimited checkbook, but it's about finding the right balance and the right mix of all the services capabilities. There's certainly a role for long range Air Force bombers in both our strategic and tactical level campaign plans, but there's also a vital role of the aircraft carrier in that as well. And I think it's like we said, it's about finding that right mix, that right balance amongst our joint capabilities to achieve our objectives. I think the aircraft carrier will, for the foreseeable future, be the Navy's most effective tool to project power, deter aggression, keep the sea lanes open. Mm -hmm. We still move the majority of our commerce on the seas and then maintain our relationships and our commitments to our allies around the world. Perfect segue, Sarge, into the third third of this, if you will, which, of course, none of us has a crystal ball. But will our great-great-grandchildren 100 years from now be celebrating the 200th anniversary of aircraft carriers? And we'll talk some details here in a moment, or at least some questions about what that looks like. But this thing has a future, I would say, yeah? Absolutely. I'm not willing to sign up for another hundred years that we may have other aircraft carriers out in space. I don't know. <laughs> those flying carriers from the yeah, Avengers. Yeah. yeah, those are cool. But certainly I think there's a role as we continue to build new ships that are designed to last again, 50 plus years. I certainly see those serving throughout their lives. And again, the flexibility and agility they bring to the Navy, just from a planning and execution standpoint, I think are unmatched until we find something that can better the capabilities that they bring to the fight now. I don't know what we'd replace them with. Right. I think thinking about the future is a really, really interesting thought game, if you will. And I don't want to be the guy who makes policy. This is just one operator's thought on what's in the realm of the possible. Because like you mentioned, what we have now is not what anybody 100 years ago would have envisioned. So what we have 100 years from now is not something that we're going to be able to uh, slap the table on today. But think about what has changed over time. When we talked about Midway, the admirals running the battle for Midway were operating out of battleships and heavy cruisers. That was their command and control platform. But as the aircraft carrier turned to prominence and the space that is available there, that is now being used for command and control. That's where the strike group admiral operates. And as smaller, we're working on bandwidth solutions to get more bandwidth. I could certainly see the command and control aspects growing even more. And why not, as these components get smaller and bandwidth becomes available and the electrical power generation of our nuclear mm -hmm. reactors, why not move some of our cyber capabilities out closer to the end user? Just thinking about things like that, what are we doing today that we can do differently? That's one step in evolution. I'm not smart enough to even think about stuff that hasn't even been invented yet, but that's what the folks who come after us are going to be envisioning. And I think it's exciting to think about 100 years from now, it's going to be a drastically different uh, celebration. Right. And I think it's the aircraft carrier's ability to adapt and evolve throughout that 50-year life. If you look at the air wing that we embarked on USS Nimitz in 1975, it is nothing like what we've got on USS Nimitz today. The ship has evolved with all these capabilities and technologies that emerge, and we're able to incorporate them with upgrades in our maintenance cycle to keep the aircraft carrier relevant throughout that life cycle. I think maybe the only aircraft that is still there is the E-2. It is not the same E-2. No, yeah, for sure. It looks a little bit like it, but It looks else. a little bit like it, but uh, inside the skin, the E-2D is a uh, much upgraded oh, and much more capable aircraft than the E-2Bs and Cs in the mid-70s. 
If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. Well, so I want to take a stab at some of the future stuff here. And as you gentlemen know, we have supporters who help keep the lights on here at the show. And one of the perks they gain from that is the ability to ask questions. So I tell them, hey, I'm going to go meet with Sergeant Minnie. What would you want to know about our 100-year celebration and what's coming? And so let's start with a question from Abraham Jumadi, who says, what would be the next step slash evolution for the aircraft carrier? So again, Minnie, you were like, well, who knows what the future has, right? But on the other hand, what seems logical? And I'll put it to either one of you. Obviously, some of that technology is already debuting on the Ford. Not only is that technology debuting on the Ford, but Vincent just returned with the air wing of the future That's on right. board. They deployed with F-35s and uh, exciting opportunities out there with the F-35. We're just mere years away from having unmanned vehicles on board. The strategy is already written and we're already moving toward technologically being able to have manned, unmanned teaming where one manned aircraft controls swarms of unmanned vehicles and things along those lines. So what's next for us is the expansion of the capabilities of the air wing of the future that the air wing of the future brings to the current air wing and the current CVN fleet. And then the next step in that comes the manned unmanned teaming and more of those technological advances that are already in the, in the planning stages right now. Maybe I got to make sure we represent here. The F-35 was new to the air wing of the future. I think also was the CMV-22. CMV-22, yeah, okay, I just want correct. those guys to feel, you know, welcome here. I should. I've been <laughs> remiss to uh, forget those guys since I live right across the street from their hangar. I hear them all the time. <laughs> all right, fantastic. All right, Sarge, John Clark wants to know, how will future threats, and I love this one, including political, <laughs> be managed and or mitigated? We're continually evolving, not just with hardware, but with tactics. As new threats emerge, again, the aircraft carrier will continue to evolve and mature our defenses, both from, again, weapons, defensive weapons and firepower, as well as our tactics. If you look at the threats that the aircraft carrier has faced over time, again, they've certainly evolved and we've continued to change our way of thinking, our tactics and our uh, procedures to meet those threats. The political ones, I'm not going to touch, uh, <laughs> you know, but I think it's by things like this, we just need to continue to carry the water of our message that aircraft carriers are relevant today. They certainly have been relevant in the past and are going to be relevant in the future going forward because of that ability to evolve and mature to meet growing threats around the world. 
I'll touch the political one. Sure, why not? But at least just (laughs) scrape the surface of it, because that's what we're here today for. I think there's a pretty good crowd of folks in the political decision-making sphere who understand the capabilities that the aircraft carrier brings and who understands that versatility, mobility that we talked about earlier. But this is a chance for guys like Sarge and I to get that word out to a wider audience so that that audience who pays the taxes, that audience who writes to their congressman can say, hey, I think this is important and I've heard what these guys have to say and it makes sense and I support this. All this commerce that moves and comes to us in two days from Amazon, it moves over the water and the carriers are doing a great job in terms of securing those sea lanes and helping us do that. I give a lot of briefs to what we call our Distinguished Visitor Program where we take civilians, political leadership and things out to carriers at sea for an overnight visit. One of the slides on there shows not just all the commerce that still moves around the world, but what the slide that surprised me the first time I briefed it was still the majority of our communication still travels through underwater cables. Hmm. It's not through cell phone towers and satellites. So again, just another reason to keep our freedom of maneuver on the seas open. And that concept hasn't changed since the Navy began in 1770 five or six. I think it was right around the uh, Declaration of Independence, right? (laughs) Moving on, Jim Gundog says, do you think efficiency will improve with the reduced crews and all electric architecture of the Ford class to include catapults and arresting gear over the Nimitz class? And before I let you answer that one, I remember when the littoral combat ships were coming out and they said, oh, this is going to be great because we're going to take the staff and cut it in half, right? So a guy's going to be a fireman and he's going to make dinner later that night kind of thing. So are they looking to do something similar to that? Um, So there is a reduction in the crew between the Nimitz-class aircraft carrier and the Ford. Part of it's because we're doing things with more automation and does not take as many folks to physically operate, not just down in the plant, but throughout the ship. It's about a 20% reduction in crew from a Nimitz to Ford class. We're still working through what that right balance is because when it comes time to assemble a 100-person working party to distribute thousands of pounds of mail that just came across from the replenishment ship, you don't necessarily have that surplus of folks that you had on a Nimitz class. Your sailors are more gainfully employed throughout the ship throughout the day because there's fewer of them. You know what, Sarge, you just made me think of something. I don't know why, but uh, I'm going to ask you, and I didn't tell you I was going to, but hopefully you can take a stab at it. Marines? Squadrons have been involved on aircraft carriers a long time. In fact, we used to have Marine security detachments. Those are gone, but are Marines going to keep playing with us? Marines are underway as we speak, embarked with Carrier Air Wing 9. Okay. VMFA 314 is out on USS Abraham Lincoln right now, operating in the the 7th Fleet area of operations. Okay. And that will continue. We will uh, continue to have some Marine, what we call TAC Air Integration Squadrons, that Marine F-35C squadrons that deploy with Navy air wings and on Navy aircraft carriers. And it's an important point you just made that I'll reiterate is I think some people tend to think that Marine Corps only has F-35Bs, but that is not the case. That is not the case. The squadrons that deploy on our CVNs, our nuclear aircraft carriers, are the same model that the Navy squadrons fly, the F-35C, the carrier version. The F-35B deploys on our amphibs, uh, our L-class ships with the Marine Corps as well. And that'll come up in a minute in a question, but I just had a sudden trivia moment. I guess, are they the only branch or country or anyone that flies both or two types, I guess, 
of F-35. Uh, we're all looking at each other across the room. <laughs> we're the only country who flies multiple types right, of F-35. The Marine Corps, I think, is the only one that flies two models, if you will. B the Marine Corps and, is C. the only one that flies the Bs, period. Well, I think, uh, aren't they going over to England? Uh, and, uh, I, well, yeah, let's strike that. That's an incorrect <laughs> statement. Yeah, the, people, the folks on USS America would not like that. So the Marines are the only service that I know of that's flying both the B and the C model. Some of our foreign partners operate the B as well. Certainly the land-based conventional takeoff and land A model mm-hmm. is the most prolific. All right, Jevin wants to know, getting back to Jim's question, which is the right catapult system for the future, Steam or emails, and why? And I'm going to take a stab at this, if I may, the fact that they're working on the emails, and then what's the arresting gear part of it called? The Advanced a- arresting gear? Is there yeah, a different like name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to think this is the way to go. Absolutely. This is the future. Like any new technology, we had some growing pains as we matured the technology and got it to operational capability, but it's up and running on Ford and doing just fine. So I think it is the future. It's a more redundant system. It's actually a safer system. It's less stress on the airframe because of the progressiveness of the shot itself. Like I said, it's got some redundancies built in it with the multiple banks of magnets that can automatically increase their output if one fails to still get the airplane to a safe flying speed. Does that mean, like, since there won't be such a demand for steam that we don't have to take Navy showers anymore? Now, both of you have been big XOs, so (laughs) is the uh, carrier of the future going to allow me to take a longer shower? Anyway, That all has to do with distilling units. (laughs) Anyway, moving on. All right. Anthony Lombardo says, what does the future of aircraft carriers look like? And in parentheses, super carriers or smaller cost-efficient carriers? Now, before I let you answer that, is his assumption there, if you will, correct, is a smaller carrier? more cost-efficient? I think he's referencing the debate that you see periodically and fairly regularly that why are we spending so much money on the big deck carriers? Can't we get more smaller deck carriers for a similar cost? So I think the aircraft carrier's large size and nuclear power are important and can't be equaled by even a greater number of smaller conventionally powered ships. The large 4.5-acre flight deck is what supports the ever-expanding air wing of the future. You know, 75-plus aircraft that bring that ever-evolving, cutting-edge technology and game-changing weaponry to the fight, whereas the nuclear power also enables the survivability, the ability to move that aircraft carrier at high speeds for long distances and much better endurance than a smaller, conventionally-powered aircraft carrier could. It's interesting from a supply standpoint, too, because, uh, you know, like Sarge says, if you want to move, you want to take advantage of that mobility, a conventionally powered ship that has to hustle, it burns some fuel. Having done some time on Kitty Hawk, you're getting gas every three days, whereas the carrier is able to go longer periods of time without having to refuel or having to pull itself out of the fight to get back in there. And the capabilities that Sarge said is spot on. The more challenges that we are facing from adversaries, the more capabilities we want to bring to bear. And it just takes space. It frankly does. All right, Sarge, a little bit ago, you said 75 aircraft. Now, I don't know what was the heyday, but I feel like it was in the 70s when you see pictures of aircraft carriers just packed with aircraft. I don't know if they had up to maybe 90. Of course, that was a headache for the handler and everybody else. But are those days gone? What? Because the aircraft are more effective and you don't need a whole squadron of strike and a whole squadron of fighter and everything else? We do have Fewer aircraft, part of it's because we've got multi-role aircraft now. Back in the 70s and 80s, you had a lot of task-specific fighter attack. Now we've got 
multi-role strike fighters that can do a whole litany of missions just as well as a purpose-built single-role aircraft could in some cases. And a lot of it's just the way the aircraft carriers evolved. We've taken some additional space for some of the additional capabilities to maintain these aircraft. So we've lost a little bit of, of real estate in the hangar bay. And I think it's important to note also that, you know, a lot of times when we deployed back decades ago, we would have aircraft go ashore to some of our shore facilities for their phase maintenance, which freed up some of the real estate as well. So it's always a shell game trying to, again, balance the uh, appropriate numbers for the mission you have with the ability to utilize those aircraft efficiently and not get in the flight deck or the hangar bay locked because uh, you've got too many jets in there. Jello, you don't have a lot of Hornet guys who listen. Are they going to hear a Tomcat guy talk about how a multi-role <laughs> aircraft can do a mission just as well as a well, single-purpose built aircraft? He is a multi-mission person because he did S3s and F-18s, if I remember correctly. And I so. will say the Tomcat evolved into a pretty good strike fighter herself. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, we have a whole sister show dedicated to that. You guys probably know Bio and Crunch. They're doing a good job with that one. All right, moving on. Jonathan Zisset says the new British aircraft carrier, I believe it's HMS Queen Elizabeth, is fossil fuel powered in comparison to the American carriers, which we've already said are nuclear. How does that affect the ships in terms of survivability and ease of repair if the ship's propulsion systems gets damaged? And then in parentheses, he writes battle damage, run aground, technical failure. Thankfully, knock on wood, I don't think we've had any issues with running aground in a long time, but I'm sure somebody out there is, and many you already kind of touched on it with the Kitty Hawk when you were on it, you had to get fuel all the time. And even a nuclear carrier has to get fuel for the planes. Right. But nuclear versus conventional, is this an argument we're still having anywhere in the States? Jello, I think nuclear power has its role in certain platforms. You know, we experimented with nuclear powered cruisers and destroyers back in the 60s and 70s and realized that additional cost not just to build, but to maintain those ships was not economically efficient. But when we look at a 50-year life cycle of our nuclear-powered aircraft carriers, that's the way to go. I think as we move forward, we've found nuclear-powered, it's the best way to power a submarine, and it's certainly the best way to power a 100,000-ton aircraft carrier. All right, then a question from Ofer. Minimi, I'm going to put this to you. How will carrier-based UASs change the battle space and specifically carrier operations? So is that even a thing right now? I think we touched on it earlier, but where are we at with that and, and how will it change? It is a thing right now. It's in the very early stages. We just completed some flight deck testing on uh, George H.W. Bush taxiing the UAS around and making sure that we understood from a handling perspective, the yellow shirts out there moving the aircraft around and the controllers interfacing with that, how they were going to be able to move that around, pluses and minuses, what are the things we need to keep an eye out for. In terms of operations, I think there's a lot to be said for what it's going to buy us from, at least initially, a persistence capability because they're going to be deployed as tankers. And so if we don't have to have strike fighters, you already talked about a smaller number of airplanes, right? So the more we can dedicate to, I would say, strike missions or just missions in quotes, then the more we'll be able to take a potent advantage of the number of aircraft that are on there. And so using them as tankers extends our range. It allows the aircraft that can strike to do the strike. But I think long-term, when you see it 
being utilized for persistent ISR. One of the things we are always concerned about is knowing what's ahead of us as we sail. So we know what we're sailing into. We can adjust course if necessary. So the farther ahead and the longer in advance we can send things out to look for us, then the more situational awareness we're going to be able to build and be able to adjust our scheme of maneuver moving forward. People are a limitation. So the more that we can keep these things up and perhaps once we shut the flight deck down and just sail for the night with everything packed away, if we can have an aircraft out ahead of us that's passing information back real time, that provides a great, great advantage in being able to understand the battle space that we're sailing into. And I think just like the air wing has evolved over the last decades, it'll continue to evolve. And we'll see uh, an appropriate mix of both manned, unmanned, and I'll use the term optionally manned aircraft in the future. I think we'll see some future aircraft have a cockpit built in them, but not necessarily have to put a man or woman in that cockpit to operate them based on the mission, the risk, and what we're asking that vehicle to do. Yeah, that makes sense. Good stuff. All right. And then the final question related to that, and again, you can debate this if you'd like, but Sean Jones wants to know, why are we so slow? to adopt UASs on the carrier. And is that a fair question? I mean, is it slow? Certainly when you look back, it's not like these drones, UAVs, whatever you want to call them, are brand new, but they're relatively new to the carrier. Relatively new to the carrier. And I think getting the technology to safely launch and recover the aircraft from the aircraft carrier is a lot more complex than taking off and landing from a runway. The precision involved, and not just taking off and landing, but getting it on the flight deck and taxiing it around, with the close quarters and the limited space, we got to make sure we get this right because the consequences is huge if we lose control of that thing from both the material and, and losing people standpoint. Mm. And the variables associated with this are so multifaceted. If you think about the crowded RF environment out there as well, you got to communicate with it somehow, but everybody on the flight deck's got a radio they're talking on and everybody on the ship is talking on a radio. And so it's just a crowded environment from that aspect. Does one communication system, if it interferes with another, what are the downhill impacts of that. There are a lot of problems that need to be solved in this. And yes, it's definitely going slower, but it's not necessarily going much slower than uh, unmanned delivery of my Uber Eats. So <laughs> it's, it's kind of on pace with that, if you think about it. Well, you it. live on base, uh, right? So it's going to be even longer. <laughs> it's restricted airspace. For you anyway, yeah. Well, just even the tactical application of, as we've talked about on the show before, case one procedures, right? If we're done right, we should never have to say anything because the folks in the cockpits are looking outside and doing all those things. Now, when a cod would show up with DVs, then it, of course, disrupted everything and we all had to let it land. And so maybe that's what the UASs will do is it's like having the cod there. All of a sudden, everything's different. But just folding into operations, I can see could be a Yeah. A and I think, again, the near term, one of the biggest advantages, it's not just, you know, let's get that airborne refueling capability. But like Minimi said, that ability to have some sort of persistent presence throughout the night with the flight deck shut down and everybody getting some sleep, but still having that asset that could stay airborne for uh, extreme periods of time, providing that SA to the watchstanders yeah. on the ship. And it doesn't have a crew day. It doesn't need to right. use piddle packs. Doesn't need and... to eat. Doesn't have a crew day. <laughs> exactly. Fantastic, guys. This has been a really interesting discussion so far. Just to wrap up, what is the Navy doing as far as the Century of Naval Aircraft Carriers doing to celebrate and commemorate? I'm sure we have a few festivities planned. So much like the uh, centennial of naval aviation, which we celebrated in 2011, we've got a year-long celebration planned with multiple events. I think the first is we celebrated 
the actual anniversary, March 20th, back in Norfolk at the Nauticus Museum and had a great event. There will be multiple events continuing throughout the year. We are looking at all of our aircraft carrier museums to participate in this celebration, as well as our naval aviation and our aviation museums, as well as our annual uh, tailhook reunion, which is the theme of this year is 100 years of our centennial of U.S. Navy aircraft carriers. All right. Well, as we wrap up, what didn't I ask you, Sarge, that we need to know about aircraft carriers strategically, either the celebration of 100 years or what's coming up? I think we've made an argument, right, that these things have been vital and relevant, will continue to be vital and relevant. Who knows? Maybe, like I said, our offspring will someday be celebrating 200 years. You know, I think it's good to recognize that aircraft carriers will continue to be a cornerstone of our Navy fighting force and play a vital role in the defense of our nation. What we've seen over the last hundred years makes me excited for what the next hundred years holds and to see where aircraft carriers go here in the future. I'd like to send a shout out to the sailors who make the aircraft carriers possible because this celebration, it's great. And it's great to celebrate the legacy and the history and to look forward to the future. But as I used to tell the sailors on Nimitz, if I took everybody off the ship and I just pushed it west into the ocean, it's not worth anything. It's really just 90,000 tons of metal and machines. So it's the sailors over the last century who have sailed, who have flown, who have innovated and made the aircraft carrier today what it is. And it's the sailors in the future who are going to make it what it is 100 years from now. And that's, I think, an equal part of this celebration that deserves a salute as well. Hear, hear. All right, Sarge, well, you're not going to serve another 100 years, but as far as the future goes, uh, you're in a role now on some shore duty. Congratulations. But what's the future hold for you? You're going to keep playing the game a while? I am. I'm the uh, new chief of staff for the uh, Commander of Naval Air Forces here in San Diego. It'll be a busy job, but an exciting job. I get to work directly for uh, Vice Admiral Weitzel, the Commander of Naval Air Forces. I'm excited for the opportunity and certainly the challenges that the uh, next year or so will bring. Commander Weitzel was a squadron CO when I was, I forget, a department head or training officer on Nimitz. So we had uh, Admiral Shoemaker on. I missed Admiral Miller, but I'm hoping if you can talk him into it, please, after he (laughs) retires, to come back to the show and give us his thoughts at that very high level on naval aviation. I'm sure the listeners would love that. So how about you, Minnie? I mean, uh, you're over there, too. So what's the future got for you? I am. I'm taking over as the uh, head of uh, aircraft carrier training. And so I'll be working for Sarge here in the coming days and uh, looking forward to enjoying some downtime on shore duty. Okay. So you've had your command. What's next for that? Yeah, I'll be waiting for uh, to see if I screen for aircraft carrier command. So following in his footsteps on an aircraft carrier someday, hopefully. Well, I hope so. Good luck with that. Please let us know so we can uh, let the listeners know. And then finally, Minnie, we talked about your call sign way back on episode 83, but Walt Slaughter. Now with Slaughter, I'm thinking Spine Ripper, Crusher, Killer. I mean, that's a great last name, but how did someone come up with Sarge? Well, it's funny. I think you two have (laughs) got to be old enough to know who Sergeant Slaughter is. There's an old WWF wrestler from the 80s and 90s. Actually, there was a whole saga with those that were wrestling fans. Remember the Iron Sheik and Sergeant Slaughter going to the dark side and then coming back. But (laughs) it's funny. So again, folks of the appropriate age know exactly where I got my call sign from. When I talk to an 18 or 20-year-old sailor, They have no idea who Sergeant Slaughter was, and I have to explain the whole thing. There are some youngsters that are old-time WWF fans, but like anything, usually, you know, it's just a play on my name and uh, might have a little bit of resemblance to the the actual Sergeant Slaughter. You weren't prior enlisted, though, or anything? (laughs) No. Okay, cool. 
All right. Awesome. Hey, Minnie, thanks for coming back. Always great to have you on the show. Appreciate you helping out today. Thanks for having me. It's been awesome. You're welcome. And Sarge, really great discussion and uh, appreciate you helping us understand the century of naval aircraft carriers. Thank you, Jello, for the opportunity, not just to share with your listeners, you know, the great history of the aircraft carrier, but the exciting future that we think they hold as well. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. For exclusive content and to help support the show, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. The views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.